picking up where we left off. A Holling Center podcast. Hosted by Michael Carroll. Welcome to Picking Up Where We Left Off. I'm Michael Carroll, Executive Director for the Holling Center for International Dialogue. The increased use of data and technology by cities around the world to improve urban infrastructure and to enhance the quality of life for residents has led to innovative solutions to municipal challenges, while also raising questions on how to best create an inclusive social and economic infrastructure. Proponents of developing strategies for integrating technology and data into cities, termed smart cities, claim its potential to be transformative in addressing systemic challenges and improving the lives of citizens. But creating smart cities is not without controversy, particularly when it comes to creating urban environments that are fair and sustainable. In October 2019, the Holling Center organized a dialogue conference that provided a platform to share common issues, discuss potential solutions, and identify opportunities within smart city ecosystems. One topic of significant interest was transportation, a sector that may have great potential for smart technology innovation. The use of data, algorithms, and applications has already led to new strategies for transportation expansion and management. New sustainable modalities in mass and individual transportation are being brought to municipalities. And even with the pandemic, the need for solutions remains great. So to pick up on where we left off on this concept of smart transportation, today we're pleased to host Jane McFarland. Jane McFarland is the director of the Smart Cities Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley and an affiliate scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Dr. McFarland has over 30 years experience in high-performance computing, data analytics, and geospatial mapping. For a large part of her career, she has been responsible for directing industry research, including as the chief scientist and head of research for HERE, a leader in geospatial mapping, and as the director of advanced technology planning for OnStar at General Motors, the first at-scale telematic solution in the United States. Her research focus is on semantic analytics, big data analytics, and visualization. She has authored over 26 patents, primarily in the domain of geospatial data analytics. She holds a PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Minnesota. And currently, she is leading the Department of Energy National Laboratory effort across three national labs focused on the use of high-performance computing and big data in transportation systems. So during our dialogue program in October of 2019, there was a significant discussion in how smart technologies could be implemented to create improved mobility and sustainable transport solutions. There was a dynamic then, and that dynamic has obviously been altered substantially by the pandemic, which began only a few months after we had our meeting. So to begin today's program, can we start with an understanding of what the dynamic was and how the dynamic has changed as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, sure. Um... Well, certainly the pandemic reduced the demand drastically at first. Um, It obviously had a huge impact on jobs in transportation, um, both from servicing demand, ride hailing and transit ridership. Um, There was a lot of job loss at first. So secondly, we still had the needs of first responders and people who couldn't stay at home to service. So um, it created a really kind of uneven demand for mobility in the city and and changed the dynamics, the patterns dramatically. 
as time has gone on, uh, mobility has increased slowly to similar levels, but it's been uneven. The example is when the university was still in remote operation, my BART ride to Berkeley was fairly empty at eight o'clock in the morning, yet my ride to the airport was fairly full. So the patterns have disappeared. So there's uneven demand response as we get back to this kind of what will be normal behavior. Will we return to the pre-pandemic patterns? Not sure, because a lot of us are going to still continue to do a kind of hybrid work. So we'll settle into a new normal, which gives us an opportunity to kind of rethink how we you know, service trans- transit needs and things like that. Currently, um, VMT, Vehicle Miles Traveled, is uh, supposedly back. Traffic congestion is back. We see that on the roads today. And albeit at a lower level, they say there's less cars out there. And I say supposedly because it's hard to get good measures of these things, right? Um, But sadly, I'll point out, while we have less vehicles on the road, traffic fatalities have increased. So this is not a good state that we're going back into. we're, we're losing 38,000 people on the roads today. But regardless of post-pandemic dynamics, urbanization is going to continue. So we still need to be diligent about managing transportation solutions going forward and continue our quest for mode shifts into transit and carpooling and bicycles and walking and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels for health and safety, obviously, and also climate. It's, it was fascinating to watch these patterns from an anecdotal perspective during the whole pandemic. In March, April, May, June of 2020, it was the best time I had ever seen in the city of Boston, which is one of the most congested in America, um, where there were barely any cars on the road. I, I'm a bicyclist. I like to go out biking. It was amazing during those three months because I was actually safer on the road in most cases than I was on the sidewalk. We're just three months, you know, just the previous fall, it would have been suicidal to have <laughs> biked on the streets of Boston. And I remember thinking, this is really pleasant. This is a nice way to get around. I'm using any street that I want. That's obviously changed. The traffic, at least in my city, has gotten worse. I know that the Traffic in Istanbul has gotten worse. Traffic in places like Dubai has gotten worse. Traffic that was already bad in places like Jakarta has gotten worse, partly because of this, this mental shift in desirable modality, where we were already starting to see this you know, through rideshare apps and things, where people were taking an individualistic approach to their, their transportation needs. And I worry if the pandemic and the fear of the virus has changed that. But are, are you starting to see some evidence that it is definitely shifting back a little bit more toward what it was? Or, or is this a, a, a type of thing where the changes are going to be permanent? We need to start building our transit solutions around some of these shifted mindsets. The fear, and I, I don't have any statistics on this, is that because people didn't have transit options, they went out and bought vehicles. So we put them back in their vehicles. And those that had that option to do that, it will be hard to get them back out of their cars. As I said earlier, there were a lot of people that didn't have a choice and they still remain as people that don't have choice. Those patterns popped up as as I mentioned. So that kind of brings us to equity and things like that 
for us to be considerate of as we move into this new normal, whatever it is. So yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, the challenge is to make transit a desirable choice as we go forward, make the mode shift desirable, make bike lanes that are protected so that mode shift is a desirable mode shift and doesn't frighten people, which is generally why I've never ridden a bike in an urban environment. <laughs> um, I'd like to backtrack a little bit to this question of social inequities. And I think that the pandemic had really uh, put this on display. There were transit systems in major cities around the world that at the beginning of the pandemic started to cut back on their hours of service and then suddenly realized that you know, cutting back on those hours of service was preventing essential workers from being able to get where they needed to be. And it was cutting people off from vital lifelines, not just to hospitals, but, you know, places where you could buy food and food deserts and, and, and other critical needs during the pandemic. So with the pandemic exposing and exasperating some of these social inequities built into our transportation systems, how can smart technologies and data be used to promote greater social equity um, going forward? As you said, the pandemic kind of exposed patterns that were associated with transportation choice. And those of us that were able to make a choice to ride a bus, ride a bike, take a train, you know, or even dramatically in this case, stay at home and work remotely. Many of us were lucky to do that. Some chose to drive their own car but as, as we mentioned, all the first responders and those that couldn't work at home had to continue to make choice between transportation modes. And it reminds us that many don't have choice and we need to distinguish between the desire for transportation and what a person can do or has to do. And so that's the, the focus is really on accessibility, right? which enables choice for those that don't have the luxury of choice. So now, you know, people in equity priority communities don't have a lot of choice sometimes. They cannot get there from, from here to there on a bus and, or they can't walk more than half a mile to transit. How much opportunity do they have to get to that grocery store and the like? So the, what, what we're focused on is kind of bringing together real world data and simulation to help us answer that accessibility question. So that you can design transportation solutions in context of livability, economic stability and equity and the like. So we can collect the data, combine it with simulation in order to better predict outcomes. And, and the outcome is do they have accessibility to grocery stores? Do they have accessibility to their work environments? Does it take them two hours on a bus to get to work? And just to kind of focus on the two pieces, the real world data and the simulation piece, one of the things that we have to really be careful of as we move into smart technologies for considering these kinds of solutions, particularly around equity, is we've got to be really diligent and making sure that we understand the data. So you know, we all know there's biases in data. Does it really reflect the reality? Are we embedding biases in the data science that we apply to the data? 
and this is really important in the machine learning applications out there because you and you often don't have explainability in the in the numbers that come out right and are we thinking about equity and sustainability when we're making these policies and using the data appropriately to 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 build the data science behind it um you know the classic example is using police response data to discuss crime where the police response data is really about police activity not crime right so so that's the data side right and then on the simulation side what that allows us to do is then take this real world data put it into a kind of a simulated world and then look at the proposed solutions and see what the impact is on the full population so one of the things that we're doing at Lawrence Berkeley Labs is um, using parallel discrete event simulation to um, simulate a day of activity in the entire Bay Area. And uh, we were able to do that with um, our technology um, and do it in a matter of minutes, which is it's kind of a one of a kind capability, which allows you to kind of iterate on solutions and say, boy, if I if I think about controlling traffic this way, it's going to put all of our traffic through these lower income communities. Uh, we know we don't want to do that for social and for health concerns, for safety concerns, all of the things that you are associated with being around congested environments. So what am I going to do to mitigate that when I'm trying to control all this traffic through my city? A classic example of that is the navigation apps that came in. And if you remember a few years ago, they were pushing everybody through residential neighborhoods. Very unsafe, very unhappy people, which created crazy solutions where towns would say, post signs that you can't come through the city, you know, this little town at eight o'clock in the morning and five o'clock at night in order to stop all those freeway people from going through. Um, so then you lose all that commerce that you might have gotten when they go through and stop at a gas station and the like. Um, so you've got to kind of balance all of this, right? Which, you know, basically demonstrates the complexity of this whole system. Obviously, from the policy side, <laughs> you're still dealing with a human element uh, in most cases. So when you run these types of simulations, that, that give you really instructive data about what would occur if a transit line were put here, or what would happen if this app routed traffic through this area. How do you make the case to the policymakers to think about this data and to think about these impacts that are beyond just the economic impacts? Well, I have not had experience with policymakers. Um, and being an engineer, um, I can understand as I can stay in my lane the best I can. But what I do try to do, and I'd like to share with you, um, is I work with the city of San Jose. And the city of San Jose is should be highlighted because they are taking a really uh, new approach to their transportation planning. And what they're building is a data-driven support system to help prioritize their transportation planning projects. So they work really closely with the communities to understand accessibility issues, equity issues, and then they're 
they're bringing in all these new data sources that are out there and applying data science in order to generate metrics so they can kind of track their, their impact over time. So they have a measure of, are they, are they making progress? And um, I'm working to integrate our data and analytics into their capability that we do with the simulation. And then the goal is to ultimately let them play out scenarios and evaluate you know, their projects on their, the positive and negative impacts and how to mitigate the negative impacts before the policies and projects are implemented. And it's kind of up to them to deal with the policy side of things. I'm just kind of the data analytics side and leave the tough <laughs> discussions around policies to them. But well, what you doing do is important because it gives them the visibility they may not otherwise have had. It, right? it does. And in the past, I think a lot of this work was done without the benefit of data. And now with simulation and data, it gives them kind of a, a, a way to kind of think through. Um, like, for example, one of the things we did is we, we said, what if we put protected bike lanes? Well, they're planning to put a protected bike lane system in. So that takes, may take a lane out, which reduces the, the throughput. And where does it create congestion as a result of having this bike protected bike lane system in? And then will it, for example, will it increase daily traffic um, next to the minority schools in their, in their local neighborhoods? And, you know, how much potential mode shift could we think about getting if, you know, if you live a quarter of a mile from a protected bike lane and can get to work in that protected bike lane, you might consider doing a mode shift um, so that we, so that we can take all of those trips that are probably single passenger vehicle trips and just make a guess on, can we shift them? And how much would that help us? And maybe we need to change the geospatial location of that bike lane uh, system to uh, encourage more people to do a mode shift. And again, that's only one mode, of course, because that we need to think about all the different modes and all more important, all the different people so that you're including the, those that are disabled, you're including seniors, you're including single moms with three children that they have to get somewhere uh, where bikes are not the mode shift that's probably most desirable. So to shift tangentially a little bit, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, that sometimes the data shows inexplicable or surprising results. And you were talking in particular how traffic deaths in the United States during this period of lowered traffic mobility went up, which is not what you would be expecting. No. So I, I wonder if we could talk about uh, a little bit about what do you guys do when you see those kinds of surprising factoids and maybe a little bit about, you know, how maybe we can use some of this data and technology for a better safety culture, uh, which is, I think, another very important aspect. Yeah, yeah. There's always a there's always a conversation to be had about fatalities on the road. Does it come from network design? Does it come from vehicle design? Does it come from just people, the human side of just making mistakes? But you know, when I worked for OnStar years ago, 
there were about 40,000 deaths on the road and we went down to 32,000 because vehicles got safer. And now we're back up to 38,000. So, I, you know, there's a variety of contributing factors, I'm sure. I probably get in trouble by saying some of the new car designs maybe have distracting systems inside. <laughs> we are definitely distracted by our phones. <laughs> Um, but I wonder if, and I, I think it's uh, pretty evident that post-pandemic, we're all uh, there's a the speed of traffic on the roads has gone higher, it's meaning that in a crash the fatality uh, probability is higher. So we're all driving faster, and I wonder if stress also adds into this, you know, group of things that contribute to this. We have opportunities now to uh, make control of traffic safer. So just as a quick example, I'm, I'm on the board of a small company called light.ai. And what they do is cloud control of traffic signals. And among many things beyond just controlling congestion, uh, one of the key, key things they offer are emergency vehicle priority. So that means the ambulance and the fire truck get to the incident faster and it reduces the crash probability for those first responders. So by just giving them a green wave of lights to their destination, we have the opportunity to kind of change that safety element for first responders and for the, whoever they're going to, to service. So I think there's things we can do. What you'll see right now is uh, in the US is that um, cities are all lowering their speed limits in order to try to resolve the safety problem. Yes. <laughs> you and I had discussions in October of 2019 about how difficult it really is to keep up with this technology and that humans and governments can only move so fast and the technology is moving a lot faster. It's that classic uh, axiom, just because we could doesn't necessarily mean we should. And, you know, you've worked on self-driving automobiles. I drive a level two self-driving automobile and I still can't put my hands off the steering wheel without freaking out. But we have a difficulty, I think, sometimes of keeping up with the data, keeping up with uh, the technology. So in this race to automation, understanding that there are still lots of risks involved with it, where do you think we should be putting our focus, at least to start? That's a good question. Where do we put our focus? I obviously have a bias <laughs> and that you know already is that um, uh, you know, I, I worked for OnStar, so I was focused on saving people in vehicles and uh, worked for General Motors when I was with OnStar. And so I know um, what cars uh, are made of and what they can and cannot do. And I also know the limitations of AI systems that are often the basis for the decision-making that goes into automated vehicles. So I have a very deep pessimism about going too far with automated technologies and vehicles currently. That doesn't mean that we won't get there, but do I think that's the answer to our problem? Let's just take, for example, 
what I was talking about before, which is controlling congestion in a city. Let's suppose automation of vehicles went all the way to the end and we could do automated vehicles for everyone. So you set everybody automated vehicle outside to go to service their needs. What would you tell those automated vehicles to do? How would you tell them to get where where its passenger wanted to go? Well, that's basically navigation apps, right? So everybody's trying to find the shortest path and you would likely create complete chaos because otherwise you need to have an understanding of the entire system. So all of those community, uh, all of those automated vehicles will have to all talk to the cloud and there has to be some kind of orchestration up there. I don't know that anybody knows how to do that. So I think our focus really should be on how do we manage those pesky humans that are out there <laughs> in their vehicles and understand how to manage those systems better, get people to where they need to go um, in a safer, health-focused way for the people that are around all these vehicles, get as much mode shift as we can, and, and embrace the technology. The technology's coming. Governments have to embrace it. It's, uh, we have to really think about, you know, industry is gonna, uh, you know, transportation is under a transformation right now and industry will push it along. So government DOTs and cities, they have, they're gonna, they're gonna have to roll with it. And the one thing that I would say is through all of this, we have to really keep an eye on digital literacy because everybody needs to move with it. And we can't assume everybody is digitally literate. And we have to think about that. I think that's an excellent answer and will give us uh, all a reason to stop for a moment and think, you know, before we plug uh, headfirst in, into the breach here. Uh, Jane, I'd like to thank you so much for talking with our audience today and for joining us on Picking Up Where We Left Off. Any final words you'd like to offer? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with me today. It was a, a great conversation. And and I, I am bullish on, you know, technology coming into trans, uh, transportation. And I think it will, we have the opportunity to really improve people's lives through this kind of accessibility view of the world. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, a, an interesting ride, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, thank you so much. My pleasure. The Holling Center for International Dialogue is a nonprofit, non-governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with predominantly Muslim populations around the world. In pursuit of this mission, the Holling Center convenes dialogue conferences that generate new thinking on important international issues and deepen channels of communication across opinion leaders and experts. To learn more, go to hollingcenter.org. Thank you.